You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 15th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up, Iran's judges have begun handing down strict sentences to those who have taken part in nationwide protests. We'll have the very latest. Also ahead on today's programme, will Donald Trump announce that he is preparing to enter the race to the White House? Trump at 71, Ron at 10%. Plus, our health and science correspondent Chris Smith will tell us about the significance of the global population surpassing 8 billion people. And then we'll be hearing from the American film critic and subtitle expert Darcy Paquette, who translated the film Parasite. Korean has a very different word order than English. Sometimes you have to kind of twist and make it sound slightly unnatural in English, but if the timing is right, then it's worth that slight awkwardness. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. A court in Iran has begun handing down sentences for those who have taken part in nationwide protests. One defendant who has not been named has been sentenced to death for allegedly setting fire to a government facility. Let's get the latest now with Negin Shirakai, an Iranian activist and former presenter at the BBC's Persian service. Negin, welcome to the programme. Could you first tell us more about these sentences? Um, it's quite uh, heartbreaking, Marcus, to see how they're building these cases. It's 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 not it's not following any legal procedures. Uh, most of these people don't have proper access to the lawyers, um, um, and lawyers who are independent and want to help them, they cannot get on the case. They they only can do consultancy, and they've been building the cases based on really a small um, um, situations. For example, I'm familiar with one case that um, he's been, he's under 18, he's been charged with um, going against the Iranian government um, in a violence way, that's a charge for him, but the, but it, the, uh, the, the cause of it is because he received a message from someone saying, uh, let's go and burn somewhere burn something somewhere. So so they've been trying to create the momentum around these uh, trials as well to say, we're going to punish everyone, we're going to be really harsh in this, it's better to go back home and do nothing. But what we are seeing as a result is that those kind of sentences, we, we have one sentence, uh, execution sentence right now, and, and the lawyers and activists are expecting much more to come. Uh, but people are getting angry because of this and they are reacting. And this is a new thing that um, that's growing and expanding. I was just going to ask if you think the wider Iranian population is, is on the authorities side, but it doesn't sound like that. Yeah, it's really difficult to say how many people because, the, because of the brutal crackdown and because of the grasp you know, the tight grasp of the government on the different things in the country, it's difficult to say, to give a percentage. But by a good authority, I can, I can say that it's a majority of people in Iran are not supporting the government. You can see it in a way that government tried to, even like school children, they tried to 
bring them out on the streets and force them to sing a song in support of the regime. And these brave elementary school girls, they're resisting. Their parents are resisting. Um, so when you see that much of resistance in the country, um, then you have to believe that the numbers are quite high, that people don't believe in, in the government. Can you try to paint a picture? How dangerous is it now to protest in Iran in the current climate? It's really difficult to say what happens in big cities. So in bigger cities, um, it's might, it, they're, the way they're cracking down, it's really brutal, but they're not necessarily using, uh, you know, real warm, um, bullets, but they use bottoms and, you know, shotguns that are not necessarily killing people, but the way these people are using, the police is using, actually kills people on the streets. We've seen footage of people being beaten to death on the streets right there, and the numbers are quite high. And, but in small towns, the problems are even bigger because CCTVs, Iranian regime, have bought uh, CCTV camera and surveillance systems from the Chinese uh, when the sanction relief started. Uh, and we had, like, documents that shows they, they've used that to buy equipment to, to oppress people. And now they're using it in small towns more than ever. So if people go to the streets, they can be recognized easily, It can they can be tracked down, but they're, they're much really, really brave and they still continue doing so. So um, the crackdown is massive. We have number of like 209 confirmed deaths by Amnesty International, but the real numbers are much, much bigger because, because of access um, problem in Iran. And there's an estimate of 14 to 17,000 people being imprisoned right now. How much further are the authorities willing to go? How much worse could this situation get? It's a really good question. Um, difficult to say because, for example, right now, at this moment, a lot of cities in across the country are are in a strike, so people don't go to work. You know the usual things that should result in a collapse of a government. Um, the amount of protests that is happening should should result in that. But the Iranian government for four decades been using uh, different techniques not to allow the usual system of revolution to happen in that country. So network building building amongst the population have been cracked down. The economy is in the hand of IRGC. And even though people go on a strike, they can still continue running the country for, for a long time. Um, and they, they've bought their followerships. So, and they don't shy away from cracking down. It's difficult, but from what I see from the resistance in people, I know that the collapse of the Iranian regime is inevitable, but the timing is all depends on which, you know, when they're going to make a mistake, when the people can, can gather and go on the streets in massive numbers. And there's no way to predict that. Do you think the government will be able to eventually stop these protests? Oh, no. No, I don't think that there is a way to go back for people. And this is the, this is the turning point. Um, on, since Mathos' death, the Iranian population decided, and quite wisely, that there is no way they can go back. And the only way to move forward is to get rid of the Iranian regime. And that's why all the slogans on the streets are talking about that, that the regime must go. It's not legitimate government for us. And we're going to change that. And I don't see any, even like a smallest uh, sign that they're going to go back from that.
You say that the collapse of the regime is inevitable and that must happen. What do you think the time frame for that might be? I don't. I I think with what you see with the Iranian people, they're quite um, brave, especially the younger generation, and they're really smart. They've been learning about uh, their rights. Uh, the, you know, the number of books, uh, the best-selling books right now in Iran are the ones about political science and revolutions, and which, that says a lot. But we shouldn't forget that the Iranian government have all the power and the money in their hands. And what people have is only themselves. And, and you know, they're, they're, they're being unified around this cause. Um, my prediction, I'm going to give a prediction, but kill me later for it. But I don't think it would take more than three to five years for the Iranian regime to go down. Negin, thank you very much for your insights. That was Negin Shirakai joining us. And now here is Monaco's Carol Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marques. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has told world leaders at the G20 summit in Bali that Russia's war in Ukraine must come to an end. Meanwhile, the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak called the war barbaric. Japan's economy has unexpectedly shrunk for the first time in a year as the rising cost of living hit consumer spending growth. But forecasters expect the world's third biggest economy to avoid recession as it bounces back later this year. And the United Nations has said the world's population has now reached 8 billion people. We'll have much more on this story with Monocle's health and science correspondent, Dr. Chris Smith, a little later on today's programme. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Carlosa. In the US, former President Donald Trump is expected to announce his renewed candidacy for president later today in Mar-a-Lago, Florida, the state where another man, Governor Ron DeSantis, could be his biggest challenger for the Republican nomination. Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Jemmock reports on a conservative party that is struggling to decide its future direction. A battle is afoot over who should lead the Republican Party this year and beyond. After a worse-than-expected result in last week's midterm elections, the fight over the party's direction begins this week in two ways. The first chapter is about who should lead Republicans in Congress. Kevin McCarthy, the party's current leader in the House of Representatives, remains favored to get re-elected, but he could face a challenge from the party's farther right wing. The second chapter, of course, is the looming prize fight over 2024. Featuring former President Donald Trump, who is expected to announce his renewed candidacy for the presidency later today, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, the new darling of the party who won re-election by a country mile last week and has already earned himself a Trumpian nickname for his troubles. See, there it is, Trump at 71, Ron DeSantis at 10%. Mike Pence at seven. Oh, Mike's doing better than I thought. Liz Cheney, there's no way she's at 4%. There's no way. This was Donald Trump at a rally in Pennsylvania, just before last week's midterms. But it's fair to say that in the last week, the mood and the polls have shifted pretty radically against the former president. That's because beyond Ron DeSantis and Florida, Last week's midterm congressional elections were a disappointment for Republicans. In a year where more than two-thirds of voters believe the country is headed in the wrong direction, 
Republicans still failed to recapture the Senate. Whether they managed to take the House or not, the overall poor showing has already led to some pretty notable infighting among conservatives. President Trump had to insert himself, and that changed the nature of the race, and that created just too much of an obstacle. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different re result. And you know, Donald Trump yeah, he kept saying, you know, we're going to be winning so much, we'll get tired of winning. I'm tired of losing. I mean, that's all he's done. I'm not a never-Trumper. Uh, I did a lot to defend him when he was president. What's different about this from other fights that he's picked, when he does something like this and he attacks Liz Cheney, then MAGA world goes, yeah, right, go get her, right? Ron DeSantis, they, MAGA world loves Ron DeSantis. And it's like watching your parents fight. So yes, nobody really wants to see a fight among their parents. But for the rest of us, what's probably going to be the most fascinating to watch is the friends of the parents. You know, the ones who have swallowed their pride and been so irrepressibly loyal over the last six years of marriage, but now, suddenly with the marriage on the rocks, could actually be faced into making a choice of who they support. That said, we have been here before. As Donald Trump prepares to announce his candidacy for president later tonight, it's hard not to think back to 2015. Because while most of the time conservatives are in lockstep with their adulation for Republicans and criticism of Democrats, 2015 and the first six months or so of 2016 saw a much rawer version. You've called women you don't like fat pigs, dogs, slobs, and disgusting animals. Your Twitter account Only Rosie O'Donnell. No, it wasn't. We want to win. Do we want to insult 53% of all voters? What Donald Trump said is wrong. He builds the wall the way he built Trump Towers. He'll be using illegal immigrant labor to do it. I know politicians, believe it or not, better than you do, and it's not good. Oh, I believe it. No, no, I believe you know politicians much better than I do because for 40 years you've been funding liberal Democratic politicians. And by the way... I funded the, you. The, the... And if Donald Trump cares the better of my party, I think it taints conservatism for generations to come. I think his campaign is opportunistic, race-baiting, religious bigotry, xenophobia. Other than that, he'd be a good nominee. <laughs> of course, that sort of rhetoric miraculously disappeared from most Republican circles once Donald Trump sewed up the party's nomination for president in 2016. It stayed away mostly through his presidency and re-election campaign in 2020. So it's really only after last Tuesday's midterms that cracks are finally starting to widen. It's prompting a sort of honesty among some party officials who had been bottled up for the past few years. Here's former Vice President Mike Pence, another possible presidential candidate for 2024, talking about Trump and the January 6th insurrection on ABC News. 2.24 p.m., the president tweets Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. It angered me. But I turned to my daughter who was standing nearby and I said, it doesn't take courage to break the law. It takes courage to uphold the law. I mean, the president's words were reckless. It was clear he decided to be part of the problem. Make no mistake, Donald Trump is still the front-runner to claim the nomination. He remains extremely popular among much of the Republican Party's base. But at the very least, conservatives are revving up for a more open discussion 
about what the future direction of their party should be. I'll let Fox News host Laura Ingram play us out on that one. So going into 2024, the Republicans are going to be looking for candidates who are focused on winning. The populist movement is about ideas. It is not about any one person. If the voters conclude that you're putting your own ego or your own grudges ahead of what's good for the country, they're going to look elsewhere, period. For Monocle, in Washington, I'm Chris Chermack. Thanks, Chris. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. The United Nations has said the world's population has reached 8 billion people. The director of the UN's population division, John Wilmoth, added that the figure is not only a sign of human success, but it's also a great risk for our future. Let's get to the latest now with Monocle's health and science correspondent, Dr. Chris Smith. Thanks for joining us, as always. Chris, how do you feel about reaching this milestone, 8 billion people? I shudder. I'm horrified. It's very poignant for me, Marcus, because I remember making one of the first radio programmes I ever made back in 1999, and I walked into a radio studio and I had a copy of a science magazine, and on the front cover of that science magazine it said in 1999, today the six billionth person was born. Six billionth. And here we are about 20 years later, and it's eight We've added a third to that number, a 30% increase in human headcount in just two decades. And as David Attenborough put it, we really are overrunning the planet. And the problem is that this comes at huge cost to the planet's resources, to biodiversity. And just look at climate change and the issue um, we're all grappling with now. And no one is in really, I think, in denial about the impact of, of climate, climate change. If it wasn't for us doing what we're doing there would not be a global carbon footprint from humankind and therefore there wouldn't be a climate change problem. Indeed, the UN has said that the growth in population is a sign of human success, but it's also a great risk for our future. And you talked about climate change, for example, already, but what kind of other problems will we be facing eventually? Well, climate change is a massive one, but we've just come off the back of two and a half years of being enthralled to a pandemic, an emerging infection, an infection that we believe, whether or not it was manipulated in the lab on the way, came from nature and jumped into humans and has now hijacked our existence for two years. That's COVID-19, of course. So as you increase the number of people, they've all got to live somewhere. 75-80% of the world's population live in cities and that number is increasing. And what that means is you need somewhere to put your cities. So people are converging on bigger and bigger centres and they need space to expand. Where do you generally find that space? Well, you go to nature. The planet pays the price in terms of you open up new territories, you bring people into therefore closer conflict with nature. So as well as the threat from climate change, we're also going to be assailed more increasingly in future by new diseases jumping into humans from the animal world, which is what happened with COVID. It's what happened with monkeypox. It's what's happened with Ebola. And 
we think that nature has plenty of different hands to play in this respect. As we increase our conflict with nature, this will become more common. And if you then super add to that the effect of climate change, and I don't want to sound bleak and dismal, but we really must confront this issue and take it seriously, you will see more people converging on less livable land because climate change is going to rob us of some of the nicest places to live, some of the best places to grow food. So more people are going to converge in greater numbers on the remaining land area. So there'll be even more conflict with nature because animals will do that too. So therefore there is a real risk of cruising for a biological bruising here at the hands of emerging infection as well as the effects of climate change and that's why we must take this seriously. How much more could the world's population grow? Well, I like to use the analogy of if I had a fish tank in my living room and I put a couple of fish in there, it looks very nice. If I think, well, that's nice, I'll add a couple more and a couple more and a couple more. It doesn't take Einstein to see that eventually the fish tank is full and what will happen is the fish will drown in their own mess and the bigger fish will start to eat the smaller fish and it will turn into nothing like the serene, nice relaxing thing I wanted to have in my living room. That's what we're going to do to the planet. Now, people keep saying, well, look, we've got science. Science can help us. And indeed, science has helped us in the past, because if we had 8 billion people on Earth uh, 100 or 200 years ago, we wouldn't have been able to feed them all. The reason we can feed them is because clever scientists worked out how to get nitrogen out of the atmosphere and turn it into fertiliser. So intensive farming feeds people. But eventually, we will then end up at a situation where we can't feed people because even that scientific solution won't work. So what we've done is effectively use science to solve a problem. There was world hunger, and that enabled us to have even more people. Yes, we can solve these problems, I think, scientifically, but what we mustn't do is solve them and then kick the can down the road and let population inflate and expand again to another X number of billion because there'll be nothing left. The natural world won't exist and basically it will just be wall-to-wall high-rise. And we don't want to live like that. We didn't evolve to live like that and no one wants to live like that. As you mentioned already, the population growth varies from region to region. What does that mean for the future? What, what do you think this planet will look like in the future if the population keeps on growing? Well, overall, the rate of population growth has averaged about 1% per year. Now, you might say, well, 1%, percent not very much. I mean, if I got 1% on my savings, I would have, until fairly recently, been pretty delighted, actually. But if you do the compound interest formula and work out what that equates to, it equates to a doubling every about 72 years. So, in other words, in under the lifetime of the average person listening to this programme, you would have twice as many people on Earth if you went business as usual. That isn't, though, homogeneous across the planet, because in some places the population is growing far, far faster than at 1%, while in others it's shrinking. Overall, there's a growth. But that means there is local pressure being applied in certain geographies, and that local pressure is being reflected in problems that then emerge in those geographies. And it's not a coincidence that Ebola popped up in a number of places in uh, the west of Africa where there were the most intense population increases. 500% is not unknown. And those increases do intensify all of the factors that I've discussed already. So the other thing to bear in mind is that this is not a homogeneous planet-wide problem. There are some places where the population growth is, is actually negative, so countries are losing their population, they're not sustaining them, but they are more than outpaced by some areas, and there are in fact seven or eight geographies where we're expecting to see the greatest surges in population in the future. Those are the ones that, A, we can expect the most problems from in terms of diseases and, and other issues, but also where we must therefore focus our efforts and anticipating those problems and therefore go in and intervene early with strategies that will help to rein in that population growth but also mitigate some of the consequences of it. Now what are those strategies then? What is your recommended course of action? How do we keep population growth in control? 
Well, what most people acknowledge is that the more educated a population is, the lower the birth rate tends to be. So really our most powerful weapon is empowerment of women and education of women because in many of the places where we see the greatest out-of-control growth in population, it tends to be that the uh, educational opportunities afforded to girls are limited and this means there's lower likelihood of having autonomy, having your own financial independence and being valued in the workplace because you aren't trained to do things. If we invest in education internationally, then we have an opportunity to help people all realise their own potential but also have this knock-on benefit that but t generally population tends to stay at a sustainable level. That was our health and science correspondent, Dr Chris Smith. Thank you very much for joining us again. It's 12.24 here in London. You are with The Briefing. And finally, we're going to hear from Darcy Paquette, an American film critic and a subtitle translator who worked on the Oscar-winning Korean film Parasite. He's been speaking to Monocle's Laura Kramer about the success of the Korean film industry and his joy when Parasite won Best Picture at the Oscars. You know, for years, I've seen the Korean film industry kind of grow and all these interesting films that have come out over the years, but it's always been really difficult to have the rest of the world really notice, you know, the things that are going on in Korea. And then to have one film break through, I mean, not only to get a nomination or to uh, receive some of the other Oscars, but to take home Best Picture was just mind-blowing. That was a huge moment. But in general, it seems the Korean film industry has been on a massive roll. It's true. I I think the quality has been there for a little while, but certainly a certain amount of momentum in order to reach viewers in other countries and to convince them to give a chance to, uh, you know, works from places that they've never been or they're not familiar with. But Korea has required, acquired a reputation as being a place that is vibrant in terms of its popular culture. You know, certainly, you know, TV dramas have been very successful for many years, especially in Asia, but, you know, it's spreading around the world and they're finding more and more fans. And so with films as well. There have been several other, you know, breakthroughs over the years. I mean, years ago there was Old Boy, which, you know, attracted a lot of attention. And I remember seeing Stephen King tweeting about Train to Busan and becoming very excited because it just seemed unreal. In recent years, it's just, it's accelerated. So, you know, Squid Game was just incredible and, and Parasite as well. As a translator... I wondered what your thoughts were. I remember when Squid Game first came out, the whole conversation, at least in, you know, a lot of international communities and English-speaking countries especially, was, do you watch Squid Game with the dubbing or the subtitles? No, it's it's kind of fascinating that people are given the option and that there are a lot of countries in Europe that just kind of prefer dubbing and, you know, it's the standard to watch a dubbed version. and then But on Netflix, it's not really established what the standard is. I mean, certainly it's a very different experience, and it affects the translation as well. There was a lot of controversy about the choice of translation for this Korean word, oppa, which literally means older brother, but people use it in a lot of different contexts with people that they're not related to. And in the dubbed version, they used the translation old man. And actually, the reason they did that was just because the O sound, when you're translating dubbed works, you have to make the mouth shape correspond to the original language so that when the actor makes an O with his or her lips, then you need an O. <laughs> and so that's why it's old man. You know, it's not because they thought this was the most accurate or, you know, representative translation for that. Uh, with subtitles, thankfully, we don't have to worry about the shape of the mouth. <laughs> we can, uh, I mean, there are a lot of 
restrictions in terms of subtitle translation, but that's one that we don't have to worry about. I would imagine timing is probably a bigger issue because you don't want to give away what something's about to happen. I hate that in subtitles. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very conscious of that because actually if you're not careful, like, you know, a reaction shot no longer is a reaction shot because the audience is getting the information too late or in the wrong order. And, you know, Korean has a very different word order than English. Uh, So it does make it a challenge. Sometimes you have to kind of twist and make it sound slightly unnatural in English. But if the timing is right, then it's worth that slight awkwardness in order to get the timing of it right. You've also translated the upcoming film Broker, which was in competition at this year's Cannes Film Festival. The director is Japanese. It's a Korean film, but I imagine that maybe added a few extra challenges as you were doing the subtitles. Yeah, I mean, for years I've been a fan of uh, Koreeda. <laughs> uh, this is his first time shooting a film in Korea, in Korean. Uh, director Koreeda speaks a little bit of Korean and some English as well. And so there was a lot of translation involved in, in the writing of the screenplay and then translating it into Korean and shooting it in Korean. When the project came to me, initially I was asked to translate the screenplay, and so I did that uh, on my own. And then for the subtitles, because there is a lot that you need to kind of check with the director and to make sure that intent of the director is expressed in the subtitles, we found it more efficient to work by email in this case. There was a, uh, an employee at the production company who speaks Korean, English, and Japanese fluently. And so he sat down with the director and explained everything in detail and all the nuance that was in the English. So after a series of back and forth, then we kind of settled on the final translation. But it was a challenge because he's a director who, he makes very emotional films. And, you know, you have to kind of pitch it the right way in English and make sure that you don't make it too emotional or non-emotional. You have to pitch it kind of exactly at the level that he's doing in it. As Korean films are being recognized more on the world stage, and there's obviously an awareness of international audiences, are you seeing that the content is also maybe being reshaped more for that? It's a really interesting question because, you know, there was a time when Korean producers and directors just thought of the international market as a a bonus. (laughs) You made the film for the Korean audience, and if it worked internationally, then that was great. It was kind of an unexpected paycheck that you received. Of course, now everyone's very aware of the international potential for Korean cinema. It's an interesting question, though, because if you set out to target global audiences, you know, your concept of the audience is very abstract. Whereas on the other hand, if you make a film that's targeting the Korean audience, I think it's much easier for Korean filmmakers and producers to visualize that audience. And so in a way, I think that specificity helps in creating a a tighter script and a script that has more interest. Even if you're targeting this uh, content at a global market, then uh, it might be best to really keep the Korean audience in mind initially and then just kind of market it as strongly as you can. Film critic and subtitle translator Darcy Paquette in conversation with Monaco's Laura Kramer. And that's all for today's edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Rhys James. Our researcher was Emily Sanderson. Our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing is back tomorrow at midday London time. I am Marcus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>